Well, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to simply continue what we began last time. I like to think of the biblical covenants as the wheels upon which the Bible's redemptive plan roll. It rolls forward God's perfect plan. And if you ignore the covenants, you really rip the core out of the the story of Scripture. And really, there's no way to understand the Bible. And now the Bible, as so often happens in popular evangelicalism, the the Bible becomes reduced to a book of quaint sayings that are taken out of context to kind of make you feel good for a moment. And on the other hand, if you understand the basics of the biblical covenants, now the storyline of the Bible jumps off the pages. And, and, it, and it all makes sense as you read any part of Scripture because every single verse in Scripture is related to one or more covenants. All of them are. So last week we began our next mini-series in the larger series on the millennium and we began examining the covenants and how they relate to and directly impact the coming millennium. And we're in the giant pyramid of a theology of of the millennium we're building, we've, we've finished the bottom layer and we're kind of on that middle layer right now. And then we'll begin getting to just uh, several dozen major texts in Scripture on the millennium directly. But we're still building this foundation. And for our purposes in this little mini-series, I'm restricting our thoughts to three covenants which have the most bearing on the millennium, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Last time we started the Abrahamic Covenant and why it speaks so importantly to a coming millennial kingdom, we walked through uh, the major texts on the Abrahamic Covenant. We'll look at one again tonight briefly. And, and we began what I called five musts concerning the Abrahamic Covenant. And then I told you last time, and we will finish with this tonight, we're going to return to one random event that seems random where Abraham chased a bunch of birds. And what does that have to do with this covenant? Well, let's just review a little bit here. Genesis 12, follow along with me. Genesis 12, verse 1. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the introduction to the Abrahamic Covenant. It's broad in nature without a lot of detail. And as we saw last time, the details grow in the book of Genesis. But again, we could basically divide the promises into three broad categories. The first one we saw last time was land and nation. Those two are interwoven together. The promise of land and nation the promise of seed or offspring, and then the promise of blessing. And along with all these, these major three categories, Abraham has promised personal blessing. He's promised a great name. He's promised that those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. He's promised that he will be a blessing to all nations. And so I have broken down our thoughts into five musts, which have a major impact on our understanding of the millennial kingdom of Christ, which is to come. And last time we looked at the first must, the Abrahamic covenant must include ethnic Israel. 
We examined the term Israel itself, and the, the issue here is that the term Israel is never used of Gentiles. Instead, it's used of the godly remnant from all the ages. Christian Jews, it's used of the future national entity which is anticipated in the Scriptures. And so that, that term is very, very specific. It's very, very clear that we are not the new Israel. The church is not the new Israel. And so the Abrahamic covenant must include ethnic Israel. That doesn't get erased. We're going to look now at four more musts. And to kind of get our our minds and our hearts in the right place, some would say, why are we wasting time on a, a theological treatise? Why are we looking at this theology? Well, as I mentioned last time, the theology of the Abrahamic covenant is so important for us because if God doesn't keep promises, some of the biggest promises in all of the Bible to the biggest guy in the Bible, except for Jesus Christ himself, if he doesn't keep those promises, how do we trust that when Jesus says that all of the sheep that he has, he'll hold in his hand and not let go of one of them, how do we trust that that's true? And so I just wanted to dig as deeply as I could and to show that when God made promises to Abraham, they stick and they are very, very specific. And because of that, we can trust in a coming millennial kingdom. In a few weeks on Sunday mornings, we're going to get to uh, what is most commonly called the Lord's Prayer. I like the Disciples' Prayer. Others have said that as well. What's one of the first things that you pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That is a pre-millennial prayer. That is a prayer of somebody who believes that the kingdom of God through Christ is coming to the earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a pre-millennial prayer. And so understanding the Abrahamic covenant, if if someone says, well, I don't want to talk about all this theology. I I just want to know Jesus. Well, Jesus wrote this. Jesus came up with this. Jesus planned this. So if you want to know Christ, know his plan and know his will. And his will was to pick one old man and to say, I will through your family, roll forward the entire redemptive plan of the whole world on you. And that's what he's done. That's our application. We love the promises made to Abraham because they tell us that the promises made to us are true. So let me give you a second must about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant must be literal. It must be literal. The basic argument of amillennialists is that the the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled now spiritually in the church. They're not fulfilled literally. Uh, They might have been had Israel obeyed the Lord and not crucified her Savior and so forth. But now they're fulfilled in the church. Those, Those things that God told to Abraham are now transferred to the church. And I looked in detail at some aspects of that last time. So in other words, the Abrahamic covenant is now fulfilled spiritually. But let's look at the promises made to Abraham and see if they're fulfilled spiritually or literally. The ones we already know about. He was promised personal blessing. He was promised personal blessing. He was blessed in earthly things. He had the promise of a massive piece of land, as we saw last time. He had hundreds of servants. He had a personal standing army of over 300 trained soldiers. Genesis 14. Genesis 13 says he was extremely wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. That's personal blessing. Everything he touched turned into wealth. 
He was also blessed in spiritual things. He lived a life of separation as God's possession. Genesis 13 and 14 speaks of this. He lived a life communing with God. He was the closest man to God on earth. He was protected by and sustained by God. He had peace and confidence from an obedient life. His willingness to even sacrifice his only son Isaac The ultimate demonstration of his faith in the Lord demonstrates the the great, tremendous confidence he had to obey the Lord at all costs. So he was promised personal blessing, and this was literal. He was blessed in earthly things. He was blessed in spiritual things. He was promised a great name. Abraham was king-like in his lifetime. Genesis 13, he he not only was king-like, he took on kings and beat them. What do Jews, Christians, and Muslims all have in common? We all revere Abraham. He's the most famous man in religious history. 4,000 years after he lived, his name is still known worldwide. People are still naming their children after him. How about this promise? He was promised that those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed Nations who have persecuted Abraham and his descendants, even those called in God's sovereignty to punish Israel for her covenant unfaithfulness, historically have themselves all been punished. Just a little history note here. What do the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, and Nazi Germany have in common? They all persecuted and slaughtered Jews and all of them fell thereafter. Abraham was promised a son through his elderly wife, Sarah. Genesis 21.2, so Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. She was 90. That's literal. Abraham was promised to be a blessing to all nations. Abraham gave us the gift of the physical Savior, Jesus Christ, the singular seed who came from Abraham. And the nations are blessed by receiving the truth of the gospel all around the world and believing on this descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Now, I just bring these up because the literal fulfillment of the immediate personal parts of the covenant to Abraham prove and set the stage for the literal fulfillment of the later future promises which go beyond his personal life. You have proof after proof after proof after proof that this is literal, 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 literal. We don't get to suddenly just say, well, everything else is figurative and now it's fulfilled in the church. Abraham would say, I don't think so. And so the Abrahamic covenant must be literal. Now there are some who would say, well, it is literal, but it changed because of Israel's disobedience. Well, here's a third must. The Abrahamic covenant must be unconditional. It must be unconditional. Covenant theology would have us believe that because Israel rejected Christ, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is now transferred in a metaphorical, spiritual term to the church. That would make it a conditional covenant. So was God's covenant with Abraham conditional or was it unconditional? Well, turn a few pages to Genesis 15. And this is familiar to us, but I want to make the case that this covenant must be unconditional, must be unchanging. First of all, the original promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, they had no no conditions attached to them. 
None whatsoever. God just says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Second, the covenant was given with massive repetition, not just to Abraham, but also to his son Isaac, also to his son Jacob. Genesis 26, Genesis 28. It's just repeated over and over and over again. And trust me, there was plenty of opportunities and examples of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sinning enough that with a conditional covenant, God could have said, okay, I'm done with you. But he kept on renewing this covenant. But third, I want to point out that the, the time that the covenant was, was ratified, it was the, the solemnization of the covenant, it was totally one way. It, it was one way only. You remember in Genesis 15, the ceremony of the sacrificed animals, we saw this last time, they're, they're cut in two and they're put in parallel lines together. God condescended to use a method of agreeing to a covenant that was well known to Abraham. This was, this was common practice in his culture of passing through the halves of these sacrificed animals. This is where we get the biblical phrase, cutting a covenant. That the animals are cut in two. Both parties in a covenant make promises. Something to the effect of, may I be like these animals cut in two if I break my promise. And so in a, in a solemn ceremony, both parties, they would, have these, they would have these animals cut in two and both parties would walk through saying, may I be sliced like that one and like that one and like that one. May I be ruined. May I be killed if I break this covenant. It's very, very solemn, very, very serious. It would be, might be what we would call signing something in blood. But do you recall what happened in this instance? Abraham obeyed God's instructions to prepare the ceremony, but look at verse 12 of chapter 15. Right about now would be when both Abraham and God would walk through these carcasses. Verse 12, now it happened that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God gave the promises of the covenant, including the land promises, while Abraham is asleep here. Verse 17, Now it happened that the sun had set, and it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. This is a representation, a manifestation of the glory of God, the smoking oven, the, the flaming torch passing through the pieces. How many parties in this covenant passed through the pieces? Just one. Just one. God put Abraham to sleep and only God made promises. It was completely unconditional. I, I would imagine Abraham was like, all right, let's do this. I, I'm ready to, to receive my promises. Boy, I feel sleepy. And then waking up to find that God has made the covenant. God has made all the promises. And in fact, God confirmed this covenant even when Israel was so spiritually destitute that they lost the land for a time and most were exiled, if not killed. Even in that, God confirmed His promises to Abraham. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 35, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day, and the statutes for the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these statutes are removed from before me, declares Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also will cease from being the nation before me forever. 
Thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will reject all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. In other words, as soon as God loses control over his creation and as soon as mankind figures out how God made everything, then the Abrahamic covenant will be null and void. Then God will reject Israel as his nation. This is as good a place as any to point out one little side note. All millennialists will sometimes point to 1 Kings 4.21 as being a total fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 1 Kings 4.21 speaks of King Solomon. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That, that sounds like a fulfillment. It sounds like a literal fulfillment, but we have to look carefully at it. The land wasn't permanently possessed as was promised to Abraham. It doesn't say Solomon possessed all that land. It says he ruled over it and peoples, foreign peoples brought him tribute. This is very different than actually occupying the land. And our amillennialist brothers would point out that this is, this is just like the description in Genesis 15, 18 of from the river of Egypt. It's, it's not the same. It's a different description. From the river of Egypt is not the same as to the border of Egypt. Those are two different places. Now, why are we thinking about 1 Kings 4.21? I just want to point this out for one reason. If the amillennialist says that Solomon fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant by ruling over all this land, first of all, they just admitted to a literal fulfillment. And second of all, how does that mesh with the Abrahamic covenant now being fulfilled spiritually in the church? Which one is it? You can't have it both ways. The Abrahamic covenant must be unconditional. Here's a fourth must. The Abrahamic covenant must be eternal. It must be eternal. I just want to read you some scriptures. We don't have time to turn to all of them, but just for you to understand the eternal nature of this covenant. And this is just a very few. Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Genesis 17, 13, the servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus, my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Six verses later in verse 19, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. First Chronicles 16, 16 and 17, which he cut with Abraham, the covenant which he cut with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. Then he also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Psalm 105, 9 and 10, the covenant he cut with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And yes, technically speaking, everlasting can refer simply to a long time. But the sheer repetition combined with the unconditional nature of the covenant means it only allows this covenant to be eternal. A covenant which will abide forever. Let me give you a fifth must. And that's the whole point of this message. And that is that the Abrahamic covenant must be future. It must be future. And in fact, to prove this to you, I want to show you that for Israel, 
as an ethnic nation to enter into the full blessing of the coming kingdom of Messiah, there was a prerequisite. There's something that has to happen as a nation, as a people. Now, it's something that's guaranteed that will happen because God will bring it about, but it's what what we might call the trigger, the activation. And when that trigger is activated, Christ will return and set up his kingdom. See if you can identify the trigger which indicates the immediate return of Christ. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also how they walked in hostility against me. I was also walking in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humble so that they then make up for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land. Now, in the context of Leviticus 26, Moses has predicted that the Jews will be scattered all over the world. But God will remember his covenant with Abraham. Keep looking for the trigger. Jeremiah 3, beginning in verse 11 through 18. In verse 13, God commands Israel, acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against Yahweh your God. Verses 17 and 18 of Jeremiah 3. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of Yahweh. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. They will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Another record of the trigger, the, the, the activation point. Hosea 5.15 I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. Here's a question for you. When is the time when God has come but returned to his place? There's only one time in all of history. The best fit in the larger context of all the passages I've just mentioned is the coming of God the Son and his return to heaven, his place. But there is an until. And after the until, he will return. Now, if you don't believe those Records of a trigger. How about the words of Christ himself? Matthew 23, beginning in verse 37. Jesus laments his beloved people. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, here's the trigger, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ has declared that that Israel won't see him until. So what is this? What is the trigger? Leviticus 26.40, where I started. If they confess their iniquity, singular, one specific sin. Jeremiah 3.13, acknowledge your iniquity, singular, one specific sin. Hosea 5.15, acknowledge your guilt. And Christ is going to remain in heaven until they acknowledge their guilt. For what? One specific sin. Matthew 23.39, Jesus said Israel will not see him again until they acknowledge Christ. What's the trigger point? What's the activation? What tells us the return of Christ is about to happen? It is the repentance of Israel for their one particular sin, the rejection of their Messiah. 
The rejection of Christ. That's the trigger point. When they repent, Christ is returning. God will bring about this repentance. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And what happens two chapters later in Zechariah 14? The return of Christ to rescue his now repentant, now saved people. The Abrahamic covenant must be future. Now I want to finish our time tonight with an odd scene. You remember the official ratification of the Abrahamic covenant when God in Genesis 15 instructed Abraham to kill and cut in two various animals. And this is, this is solemn. This is a big deal. This is formal. This is ceremonial. This is very, very serious. This is somber. There's a sobriety to it. This is not informal. This is a, 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 as big a deal as you can think. But right in the middle of it, Genesis 15, 11. Then the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Why is that there? What is that about? Well, what happened immediately after this? Now, it happened that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Why? Well, listen to what the message is. Then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Right after chasing the birds away, we get the the reason for this symbol. This covenant will be attacked. It will seem threatened. The descent of the birds trying to ruin the actual ratification of the Abrahamic covenant is put for us here to see And for Abraham to see a picture, a a symbol of the fact that the covenant of Abraham will be brought through opposition, through darkness, through suffering, through century after century after century of difficulty. And like the smoke and the fire of the burning oven as the manifest presence of God, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant will come at least 4,000 years after it was made. But it will be through pain and anguish and exile, and slavery, and holocaust. But like the birds being chased away, so also nothing will stop the Abrahamic covenant. Nothing will stop it. And aren't you glad? Because we're riding on the wheels of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant brought us to the foot of the cross. And the Abrahamic covenant will bring us into the kingdom of Christ on this earth. I would be terrified to wake up any morning thinking that God is anything less than a covenant-keeping God. And so Abraham stands as a monument. He stands as a sentinel to show us that God keeps His promises down to the last little detail. And if He promised something 4,000 years ago, that promise hasn't become stale. And in fact, the book of Hebrews tells us of the faith of Abraham when God promised him a son and time went by one decade, then two, then another five years, 25 years. You know what Abraham thought and why he was such a great man of faith? Here's his reasoning. His reasoning was that every year that went by that he waited, 
was that much greater an opportunity for the Lord to bring fulfillment to his promises. You know what that tells me? It's been 4,000 years. So my prayer is the same as John's. Come, Lord Jesus, any time. Any time. The Abrahamic covenant is getting ready to be fulfilled. God is a covenant-keeping God. And if you have trouble believing that, just ask Abraham. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you. I, I don't know how it could be possible for you to be more comforting, to give us more confidence, to give us more assurance. And these assurances, Lord, travel forward into the new covenant to the assurances you give us in Christ that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The assurance given through the Apostle John, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Lord, we are passing through very quickly on this earth. And we have but moments to come to faith in Christ and that then have assurance that when our bodies fail us, you will grasp us by the hand and you will keep all of your promises to us. All of your promises that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. All of your promises that I go away to prepare a place for you to bring you to where I am. All of the promises to bring us to your Father's house. All of the promises to return and to resurrect us. All of the promises to take the living saints up in rapture and to resurrect those who have gone on before Every promise of God is sure. And Abraham stands as witness to this glorious attribute of your faithfulness. May we be faithful to you in gratitude for your perfect loyalty to your own word. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.